Hey there, podcast listeners. Thanks so much to, for listening in. My name is Art Wright, and I'm the pastor here at Williamsburg Baptist Church in historic Williamsburg, Virginia. The sermon you're about to listen to comes from 2 Samuel chapter 11. This is the notorious story of David and Bathsheba, in which David um, is standing on his balcony and sees Bathsheba uh, bathing on the roof and then summons her to his palace. Uh, and, and things only get worse from there. The sermon title is The Mighty Have Fallen. And fun Bible trivia, the phrase, oh, how the mighty have fallen, comes from something David said himself in 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 19, when Saul and Jonathan uh, fall in uh, battle against the, the Philistines. Um, and so, I, somewhat ironically, now David is the one who has fallen uh, uh, in this um, this terrible act that he commits against Bathsheba and Uriah, in um, in um, taking advantage of his position of power. So, ho- hope it's helpful for you. It is a hard story, but it's an important one, and one in which Bathsheba has unfortunately gotten a. a unfortunate reputation from in history. So I hope to rehabilitate the image of Bathsheba a little bit, who really is uh, almost entirely passive in this passage uh, because she's a woman and he's the king of um, uh, king of Israel. And so he is uh, has so much power that he can wield. Anyway, feel free to head over to williamsburgbaptist.com to find out more about what's going on in the life of our congregation. We're also on Facebook and Instagram, and you can always email me if you'd like, pastor at Williamsburg Baptist, if you'd like to connect, um, share prayer concerns, or um, find out more that's going on in the life of the church. We really are glad you're listening and count you as an important part of our ministry and our congregation here in Williamsburg, Virginia. God bless you. Take care. I could trade this morning with Rachel. <laughs> Thank you, Erica. Job well done. I'm curious, just as a way of entry point into this sermon, have any of y'all ever seen the TV show Jane the Virgin? Okay, <laughs> very few of us. Okay, one of my wife and I's faves. It's a, it's, it's sort of modeled after um, Latin American telenovelas, which are basically soap operas. But the characters keep finding themselves spiraling down into worse and worse and worse situations. I couldn't help but think about that this week and David as he keeps digging his hole deeper and deeper and deeper. Last week we met Joshua, who was the heir to Moses and the leader of the Israelites as they moved into and settled in the Promised Land. And we saw them recommit their lives to God uh, and to God's promises in the covenant. And as they put down roots in the promised land, first they were ruled by judges. Uh, You may recall the names Deborah and Samson. Uh, And then later they are ruled by kings, first Saul and then King David, who we meet in today's text. If you've been with us for a while, you may remember that we've encountered King David a couple of times in the last year or so. First, we met him as a young shepherd boy, the youngest of eight brothers, who the prophet selects to be the, and anoints to be the next king. 
Then later we met David as part of Saul's army when they're confronted by this giant named Goliath. And David bravely steps forward and slays the, the, uh, the, the giant. From the get-go, David is described in scripture as innocent and pure of heart. He's described as a man after God's own heart. And that's why the prophet Samuel selects him to be the new king. And in many ways, David's kingship represents the high watermark for the Jewish people at that early time in history. The 12 tribes are united among his, under his rule, and later writers in, in the Hebrew scriptures look back at him as really a sort of ideal king. But today's story marks a pivot point in his life and in the life of the entire nation. It's a story that has been told thousands of times by preachers and movies and made-for-TV specials. And it's often told like this. David is a good and faithful king who happens to be enjoying some well-deserved downtime in Jerusalem. He goes strolling on his balcony one evening, and lo and behold, he sees this beautiful temptress who happens to be preparing a bath on her rooftop. She disrobes seductively and and maybe winks at him as she steps into the bath. Her thoughts far from clean. And even though David is a strong and noble man of God, the temptation is just too much to bear, so he invites her to his palace where they have their illicit tryst. All too often in history, Bathsheba has been presented as a femme fatale, a culpable woman who plants the seeds of temptation in David's head, which leads to his tragic downfall. And you should, you should Google later. I keep telling you all to Google biblical artwork, and none of it's safe for work. Uh, Trying to find artwork to put on social media this week and struggled. There's some interesting artwork out there of David and Bathsheba, as you might imagine. What I have just shared, though, is not at all what happens in the story if you pay attention and read carefully. It turns out that David is a far more complicated character than he's been given credit for. From the get-go in today's scripture reading that Erica read, David is shirking his kingly duties. The narrator says that this is the time of year when kings go off to war and lead their armies in battle. Israel is at war with the Ammonites, and David should be expected to be at the front, leading them in battle. And yet, instead, he's back in Jerusalem. And as best as I can tell, it's simply because he's decided that he enjoys the trappings of being king better than leading his army in battle and sleeping in tents. David is ignoring his responsibility to these other people. He stopped thinking about the common good. Here's how the JPS translation describes what happens next. It says, Late one afternoon, David rose from his couch and strolled on the roof of the royal palace. David is clearly in vacation mode, not kingly mode. And from the roof he saw a woman bathing, And the woman was very beautiful. But pay attention to the staging here. David is described as on the roof. We don't get any description of where she is or why she is where she is. In all likelihood, they don't have a private restroom in their house where she could shower in private. She's probably bathing in the courtyard, which would be blocked from view to the outside world. But because he enjoys this place of privilege in the palace, he can peer down into people's lives from his lofty perch. 
And it's only because of that that he's able to see her. David sees Bathsheba and finds her attractive. He says, go find out who this woman is. And the report comes back. This is Bathsheba, daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. He's probably disappointed in this news because if she's unwed, he could take her and add her to his royal harem. But he learns that her husband and probably her father too are off at war, the same war where he's supposed to be. And, and there's no sense that David hesitates. There's no internal wrestling. He may very well be thinking, I'm, I'm just going to go for it. I'm not going to get caught because they're off at war. And so he sends his messengers to take her from her home and bring her to the palace. And it's not an invitation. When the king asks, you can't say no, right? There's nothing consensual about what happens in this story. In fact, Bathsheba is entirely without agency and without voice in this passage. She never speaks once. She could either go willingly or they could take her by force. Either way, she'll have to suffer the consequences. And so David takes her, he does what he wants with her, and sends her back home, assuming that no one will be any wiser for the transgression. After all, who would take her word over the word of a king? But then the plot thickens. Bathsheba sends word that she's pregnant. And now there is evidence of what David has done. And so he attempts a cover-up, like many politicians throughout history. He invites Bathsheba's husband home from the war for a respite and hopes that he'll sleep with his wife while he's at home and then assume that the child was his. Uriah is a person of integrity. He won't even sleep in his own house. He says, if my fellow soldiers are in the field, I'm going to sleep outside too. So he sleeps outside. The next night, David gets Uriah drunk with a feast and then hopes he'll have a change of heart, but Uriah still won't go and sleep with his wife. And so David digs the hole deeper. He sends Uriah back to the front lines, this time with instructions for his officers to send Uriah to the very front where he's the most vulnerable, and lo and behold, Uriah is killed in battle, as David expects. I can't help but think that when David gets word that Uriah has been killed in the fighting, he thinks, whew, what a relief. I'm glad that's over. There's no need for a cover-up now. Bathsheba is a widow in mourning. Once an appropriate amount of time has passed, David takes her into his harem as a wife. She gives birth to the son, and life goes on. No one knows. The end. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Verse 27. And the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Nathan the prophet knows that God is displeased and offers a short parable that reveals the depths of David's transgression. He traps David in his own words if you read on. It's a fascinating parable. David realizes that he's caught and he repents to God. But the surprising thing to me is that he doesn't express grief towards the humans that he heard in the story. He doesn't apologize or attempt to make amends with those he has used and abused. And here's where I say I'm stumped by this story. I don't know what to say. 
This story is awful. David is awful. He himself says that what he did was demonic. He exploits his position of power to take what he wants by whatever means are necessary. Uriah and Bathsheba be damned. He has more than enough. He's the king. He can have anything he wants except for this one thing. But he takes it anyway. And all that I can do to make sense of this is just to say power corrupts. That's all I can figure out. He's selfish and drunk with power and blinded to the very real and very painful consequences of his actions. He does one terrible thing, thinking he won't get caught. And then when Bathsheba becomes pregnant, he doubles down on his transgression by plotting the murder of Uriah. It's hard for me to point to something good that comes from this. The scriptures don't put a bow on this story or tidy it up for us. For David's sake, I think there's something to be said against putting humans on pedestals and putting our leaders on pedestals. We're all capable of sin, and when one person is elevated above all others with no guardrails, bad things happen. We read this in the newspaper all the time. Am I right? I can't help but think of some evangelical megachurch pastors who preach very rigid moral perspectives, and then the news breaks that, lo and behold, they've abused their positions of power. I saw a video a few weeks ago of Matt Chandler, who's the pastor of one of the largest evangelical Southern Baptist churches in the U.S., and he got caught and accused of some impropriety, and only then did he apologize and take a leave of absence from his position. I wish I could find a way to put a bow on David's story and Bathsheba's story. But as best as I can tell, David just blows it in the worst way possible. If integrity is who you are when no one is watching, David is not a person of integrity in this story. And in my opinion, it's not enough for David to give a short speech and confess to God about sin. There's a human aspect here that needs to be corrected. Forgiveness and restoration and reconciliation that I wish would and could happen in this story. I wish David could be more, and I wish God would expect more from him. This is the guy who Samuel said has God's own heart. We should expect more from him, and expect more from all people in power. I don't imagine that we will have perfect leaders in this world. But I do want ones that strive to live with integrity and live in just and moral and ethical ways, recognizing that, yes, we all fall short sometimes. What I can't stand, though, are leaders who demand certain standards of morality from others and then hypocritically break those standards themselves if they are immune, as if they're immune or above reproach. And I want leaders who can take an honest look at themselves in the mirror and say, I screwed up. I have sinned before God, yes, but I also see the human cost to my mistakes, and I will do everything in my power to make amends. I don't want to let David off the hook today. I want more from him. And yet, when we take a step back from this text, we're forced to recognize that life is so much more complex than we'd like to admit. Uriah loses his wife. 
Bathsheba is dragged through an unspeakable series of events. Who knows what scars she will bear for the rest of her life? But in some way that I struggle to fathom, God works redemption and salvation even through this story, even through this tragedy. David and Bathsheba's story has a coda to it in the New Testament. In fact, I looked ahead and will read it on January 1st this coming year. Bathsheba is mentioned in the genealogy of Jesus in the very first chapter of the Gospel of Matthew, would you believe it? Matthew said that as, as he, Matthew is going through the, the ancestors of Jesus, he says, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. Matthew doesn't hide the fact that life is messy, that one of Jesus' direct ancestors stole a woman and killed a man. And yet, by the grace of God, redemption still comes. Grace still comes. Salvation still comes. Frederick Buechner once said, the worst thing is never the last thing. The worst thing is never the last thing. And Brian Stevenson of the Equal Justice Initiative said, each of us is more than the worst thing we've ever done. If you are someone who sees yourself more in David's shoes this morning, you are worth more than your worst moments and worst decisions. Know that God is not done with you yet. God is still working in your life In love and forgiveness and reconciliation and restoration, God has divine purpose and meaning for your life. And if you are someone who sees yourself reflected more in Bathsheba this morning, I can say the exact same thing to you. God still sees something beautiful and worthy in you and is calling you to new life and new purposes on the other side of tragedy. Each of you is beloved. And your story is not done yet. God is still working in you and through you to bring about something beautiful in this world. And that is good news. Thanks be to God. Amen.